Will evil robots someday take over the world? We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make it the show? And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Having a little trouble with the lips here today. Uh, appreciate you coming today. We're going to take another look at the concept of evil robots and AI uh, taking over the world, or maybe not. Uh, this time, from more of a scientific perspective, earlier in the week, we were talking about it uh, from a theologian. Uh, theologian. Theologian? perspective when a pastor who has written a book about the subject was on and uh, today we have more of a scientific look with a guy who has been uh, studying AI and and um, computer intelligence computers uh, and their impact on the world since 1979 so I think he's got a, a pretty good handle on the subject he's written a book called evil robots killer computers and other myths the truth about AI and the future of humanity uh, so we'll be talking to him in just one moment before I bring him in I need to quickly uh, introduce you to our sponsors today today's show is brought to you by audiobooksnow.com and I'm not sure if this particular book is available on audiobook yet but you know about the convenience of audiobooks and you know that you can get audiobooks just about anywhere on the web right now so why audiobooksnow.com what makes them different well the answer is simple price point price point price point audiobooks now club pricing plan is simply the best deal on audiobooks you'll find it offers the savings and flexibility not found anywhere else with their save on everything discounts rollovers exclusive offers loyalty program incredible selection and cancel anytime policy it simply cannot be beat plus get a free premium audiobook on select titles when you click the link in the description right now and also you're going to start a 30-day free trial of the club membership uh plan and it's normally 4.99 a month uh if you have to try completely free for 30 days and you're not happy anytime uh you just cancel you won't be billed a thing for the audio uh for the club pricing plan now audiobooks now you save on uh, every audiobook you purchase but they do not use gimmick gimmicky credits to hide their true costs whether you want to save big through the club pricing plan or simply purchase at their everyday low prices they offer the lowest prices uh, anywhere on audiobooks that you'll find uh they offer one of one of the largest selections uh on audiobooks anywhere you can download a stream to your audiobooks through your website or free apps all available on the website click the link in the description i do appreciate you patronizing the, our sponsors now uh my intro here is uh kind of long probably the longest we've ever had and uh so bear with me it's it, it's worth listening to because it's an impressive uh little bit of a uh, preview resume steve schwartz is uh my guest today steve has received his phd from johns hopkins university in cognitive science where he began his ai research and also taught statistics at tosin state university after receiving his phd in 1979 ai pioneer roger shank um, 
I hope I get that right, invited Steve to join the Yale University faculty as a postdoctoral researcher in computer uh, computer science. In 1981, Roger asked Steve to help him start one of the first AI companies, Cognitive Systems, which progressed to public offering in 1986. Steve then started Aspirant, which produced one of the leading business intelligence products of the 1990s. During the 1980s, Steve published 35 articles and a book on AI, spoke many AI conferences, and received uh, two commercial patents on AI. As the AI winter of the 1990s set in, which I need to ask him about what that means, uh, Steve transitioned into a career as a successful serial software entrepreneur and investor and created several companies that were either acquired or had public offerings. He tries to use his unique perspective as an AI researcher and a statistician to both explain how AI works in simple terms, to explain why people shouldn't worry about intelligent robots taking over the world, although we will, uh, and to explain why the steps we need to take as a society to minimize the negative impacts of AI and maximize the positive impacts. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Steve Schwartz to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Steve, welcome. Hey, thank you, man, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to have you and my privilege to have you. And uh, this is a subject we've talked about this week. It started with simulation theory. I'm not sure uh, how much you know about that stuff. But uh, I had, I've been trying to get physicists on to talk about um, simulation theory and, and, and haven't had much luck at all. So the best I could do was get a guy I found on Facebook who, uh, who actually knows a little bit about it and is a believer in it. But it, it, it went to the point of artificial intelligence because uh, the belief in simulation theory is about a, uh, a creator who is a, uh, a, a computer geek, I guess, and, and simulating the whole world. But the very next day, I had a pastor on who has written a book about this subject. He also comes, oddly enough, as a theologian, he comes from a perspective of we don't need to be that worry, worried about it as well, which is surprising to me because I would think most of the religious uh, people would be on the side of um, this is a bad thing. Uh, so I appreciate your perspective here, and I, I'm hoping that we can learn something, but I'm not optimistic that you're going to uh, make people not nervous about this because it's something that we've been conditioned for for 60 or my whole life at least uh, now 60 years or, or more uh, through television, movies, books, and, and pop culture in general, is that uh, someday Hal, uh, Hal is going to take over <laughs> and, and run the world. So uh, give me why, why we shouldn't worry as a starter point. <laughs> sure. So and you, I hope you'll tell me, Matt, at the end of the podcast, if you're still worried about Hal. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people are worried. You know, they've seen uh, the, the uh, TV series Westworld, where there are human-like androids. You can't tell the difference between the androids and the humans. They saw 2001, the Arthur C. Clarke movie that you're talking about, where there was a, a computer that ran the ship and, you know, talked to the astronauts just like a person. Uh, we've seen the, the Terminator movie, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, movie with the evil Terminator, uh, tried to exterminate humanity. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's on the tail of a lot of really great progress in AI. So because of AI, we can have our smartphones label our, the pictures we take 
with the names of the people in the pictures. We can translate languages. We go to a web page in a foreign language, we click a button and all of a sudden it's in English. Um, and on and on, you know, we're making progress in, in medicine and AI is really, really uh, one achievement after the next. And, you know, so because of both of those things, people wonder where it will all lead. Um, uh, and so you naturally worry about these intelligent robots. And, you know, there, there are some well-known people who, who put gasoline on the fire. Elon Musk uh, constantly says that um, AI is the biggest existential risk to humanity. And the, the late physicist Stephen Hawking said a, made a similar point. Um, so that's what people are worried about. The reality is nobody has a clue how to build an, a, a truly intelligent robot. Um, and, and all of the amazing breakthroughs that we've seen in AI um, are really relatively, relatively simple technology with no intelligence at all. Hmm. Well, I, I have to play the devil at devil's advocate here. Not that uh, I'm I'm on the fence. I'm really uh, curious and want to learn. But uh, the the argument is um, not so much uh, the housing because you know we. I think people are intelligent enough to understand a dramatization or something that is put in there for dramatic effect of this computer that just refuses to take orders now and I'm going to give the orders and I have the ability to lock you out of a spaceship or whatever. Uh, that I think people realize that that is contrived through uh, for dramatic purposes and, and dramatic effect. But uh, as we were talking the other day, and I know this is true, uh, robots are not always the way we characterize them in the movies. They're not always humanoids. And so uh, the as a marketing director for a, a period of time, I worked for a packaging, a food packaging machine uh, company, company that build machines that uh, package food. And those are robots, even though they don't look like humans in any way. They're robotic and intelligent somewhat intelligent uh, understanding machines that that have a complete function but when they break down uh and, and have a problem human uh, the the analogy was that humans become the slaves to the machines right now the the human humans are putting in more time serving the machines than uh than necessarily the machines serving the humans and that is a uh it's kind of on the edge of where we're talking about because the real fear is that someday the the robots will take over and we will become slaves to them and we and in some small aspect of that when we when we see they have problems that has been the case in manufacturing no am i completely off base there well the, the robots in manufacturing um have started to do a lot of jobs but those robots are completely unintelligent. Um, they can't have a real conversation with you. They can't think and reason in any, in any real sense. They're programmed to do one very specific task. You know, you, if you go into a factory and you see a robot arm uh, that just is constantly painting the same spot on the next automobile or, you know, banging a nail in for somewhere, you know, usually there's a big red sign that says, you know, don't don't cross the red line or the robot arm might hit you. You know, nobody thinks of those as intelligent. 
No. But that's the level of intelligence of, of all the robots that are in factories today. Not um, quite, though. Uh, if I may, I'm sorry to interrupt, but with, with the food packaging machines, they were taking raw product, measuring it, putting it on it, I think, to be washed, measured, put into a container. Uh, another thing would come across and seal it. Then they'd have an, another a part of the same machine coming in to measure the oxygen and hydrogen and all the different gas and nitrogen that are in the, in the package. And then the machine would report and say, there's a problem with this food. Uh, it it, it uh, might be a little uh, past ripe or it past its best state or whatever. And, and the oxygen and, and hydrogen level is this. So it is communicating and doing far more than just one simple test. This is a very set of uh, set of complex task that uh you know but in some way it was communicating back to the operator exactly what was going on and if there were problems and all that stuff so absolutely uh, so let's let's talk about how that robot works so everything that that robot does except one piece you don't need ai for you just need conventional software where a programmer writes explicit instructions that tells the robot exactly what to do, you know, how to measure something, uh, what to say if a value is over a certain threshold and so forth. The AI in that particular robot is in the computer vision, the ability to um, find the parts it's looking for by interpreting what comes in through the camera lens. Right. And that, and that part is AI. And, and let's talk about how that particular piece of AI works. Um, so let's say you want to build a piece of AI that can recognize and distinguish between five different parts in a factory. Okay. What you will, what you will do is you'll create a, a database of examples of those five parts. You know, maybe you'll maybe you'll have ten thousand of each part. You'll you'll mix them all up, and along with each the picture of each part you'll say there'll be a label. This is part one or, or this is uh, whatever it is. This is part one, this is part two, this is part three, this is part four. And then you feed all that data into an AI algorithm that learns how to take an image and classify it as part one through five, okay? And once it's done doing that, now it can take images that weren't in the, in the uh, training database and it can classify those as parts one through five. So it can, it can take new ones. And that's essential because on the factory floor, it's never seen any of those exact, exact parts. But that's the only thing that that piece of AI can do. It can't distinguish between a dog and a cat. It can't have a conversation with you. It, it can't do anything else. It's just a stupid algorithm. It, it was learned with AI, and it's, it's impressive that AI can do that. But there's no intelligence there. Right. Okay. So I'm with you now, and I can actually probably give you my answer now that I'm not nervous about Hal taking over the, the world based on uh, just already what you've laid out on that. But here's my but. Uh, we, we look at how quickly things have evolved from uh, the very first computers that were as big as a house that would just be able to give you a simple word processor, word processor a readout of something or, or something like that and use the tapes and all that stuff to where we are today. Uh, so looking not just 10, 20 years down the road, but say 100 years down the road, 
uh, we're looking at the possibility that there will be real intelligence, um, or am I just uh, just being uh, like a science fiction uh, fantasy in, in, when I think that way? <laughs> I think it's I think it's fantasy, but there are some people that make that argument. And here's the problem with that argument: fifty years ago, you had computers that did word processing that were really, really primitive compared to today. Uh, you know, I don't have the statistics. You know, let, let's say there um, today's computers are a million times faster. It's probably more than that, right? Right. But if you put the same word processing program on that slow computer and today's fast computer, the only thing it can do is word processing. Now it'll do it word processing fast on one machine, and on the older machine, it'll take forever to open up the document, but it still will only be able to do the word processing that you programmed into it. Now let's look 50 years in the future. Now say we have a computer that's 50 million times faster and more powerful than today's computer, and you put that word processing program on the computer, and that's the only thing you put on it. Guess what? The only thing that really fast computer can do is word processing. Right. Okay. Uh, I, and I, I, uh, I, I kind of get where where you're going with that. But have there not been advances in what looks like human intelligence, in which is what artificial intelligence is? It's mocking human intelligence. Have there not been some that are beyond that? From from the days of that uh, initial really clunky uh, IBM computer uh, that was as big as a house and required lots of tapes and all that stuff to do simple word processing, had there not been advances that look like um, intelligence in 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 word processing in in, in computers and robots in in general from oh, from that time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at facial recognition. Right. We have computers that can look at a picture and say, yeah, that's a picture of Matt. That's a picture of Steve. That's a picture of my daughter, Becky. Right. It's amazing. Let's talk about what's under the hood, though. It's amazing. What's amazing is that you can take such simple technology and produce something that seems so intelligent. So let's talk about how facial recognition works. You start with a database of, in this case, you know, probably millions of examples of people's faces and their names. You feed those million images to an AI system and it will learn a function. Um, you, you probably remember functions from, from high school. Where, right. You know, centigrade is, is uh, five-ninths of Fahrenheit minus 32. That's right. a function. There's right. no intelligence in that function. The AI system will learn a function very much like that temperature conversion function, more complicated, but it'll be just a function. And all it can do is take an image and put a name next to the image. But that's all you need. And it seems really, really smart. But all it is is one function, and that's the only thing it can do. It can't tell a dog from a cat. It can't have a conversation with you. You look at machine translation. That that you know translating web pages into foreign languages exactly the same thing right so uh, medical diagnosis exactly the same thing where you started though you said let's take a look under the hood and i think that's the problem here most people um don't know exactly the workings the the inner workings of this stuff and and so when we see 
social media, delivering ad advertising based on uh, what we were thinking about, or uh, which is really weird. Uh, but actually, obviously, it's usually on our browser history. But this conversation came up the other day in that there have been times where I haven't had any browser history, just having a discussion about something. And, and all of a sudden I'm seeing ads about it. Now, uh, that could be a psychological, you know, that whole, I, and I, I forget the, the psychological term, but when you buy a new car, all of a sudden you're seeing that car anywhere, maybe because you were talking about it and now you're seeing an ad, you're making that association. Could be that, but it happens a lot. And so, but when we see general that, uh, you know, Facebook or uh, Twitter is showing us ads relevant to what we were really interested in in this moment, and we don't understand the inner workings, you can understand how people can get a little bit frightened by that technology and, and worried. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't get frightened or worried, but I get annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know the un inner workings. Again, I'm coming back to this point where you right. said, let's look under the hood. Most people have no understanding of how under the hood works. And to, and to, to us, it's like fire without knowing how fire is created. <laughs> like a Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about how those work. And and it's the same exact technology that was behind that that Cambridge Analytica um debacle. Right. If, if you remember it. And it, it, it all started with a a psychologist um who decided to and I I don't know if I have this exactly right, to study whether they could take a Facebook profile and the information in a Facebook profile and predict personality types and um, uh, political leanings and so forth. And they would do it exactly the way I, I was talking about. They build, a, they build a big database of examples. You know, here are the things in the Facebook profile, Republican, Democrat, um, uh, communist, you know, and so forth. And, and they started creating these functions to be able to predict from the Facebook profile somebody's somebody's leanings, um, and you start doing this with Facebook and Twitter and social media, and all of a sudden, um, uh, you, you know, you, you, they ended up with eighty million profiles on people. Man. And now, uh, when they go to distribute ads or uh, or decide what what somebody sees on social media. They can use these profiles and give them ads that they think will make the person buy. But it's just, they've just computed these functions that will do it. I mean, it's it's amazing technology, but there's no intelligence there. There, It's just ways. And in fact, the way they computed those functions in the, in the Cambridge Analytica case, I was teaching in 1977 at Towson University. It used to be called statistics. <laughs> yeah. Now it's called artificial intelligence. Okay. And you know, today you have much more you can you can compute much more complex functions and you can analyze much larger databases. But it's doing exactly the same thing I was teaching in 1977. Okay. Uh so here I don't even know how to really transition this because the idea that I think you're proposing is that there will never be a humanoid robot that kind of uh, is 
<laughs> and I'm not all that intelligent, as intelligent as me, uh, being able to say, I want to start a podcast and interview people to learn stuff. And I'm going to, and, and basically you'll be talking to a robot here. I get, it sounds like you're saying that's never going to happen, right? Yeah. So, you know, never is a little bit, I always hate to say never, you know, right. in, in, uh, 1930-something, Lord Rutherford, who, who was the first person to, you know, explain how the there was a nucleus of an atom and electronics that floated around it, said, we'll never split the atom and harness the right. electricity. Two years later, there was the nuclear bomb. You know, I mean, you've got people working today on time travel, warp speed, uh, the fountain of reversing aging. Um, I wouldn't say, I would never say, any of those things will never happen. What I would say is that that intelligent robot humanoid is about as likely as time travel, reversing aging, or warp speed. Okay. Well, that's kind of why I I came jump to the conclusion that I could answer your question because I don't see it happening in in, the, in my lifetime, uh, and uh, so I'm not worried about it. Right, being the, being the selfish guy that I am, uh, but uh, we're we're making this tra transition here, and I think this is part of the discussion. Is even though even if that never happens, there are human people who are running these. Uh, computer programs and um, robots and and sort of things that can have malicious or uh, I want to use the word evil intent and we worry about the big corporations that and which are run by people using these things um, against us and is that that's part of the worry too and uh, Lori has a comment I want to just show it because it illustrates that messenger on your phone listens you need to turn it off the idea that Siri and and Alexis and all uh, I think that's what it's called right Alexa Alexis or something like that the Google version of it uh, are listening to us at all times reporting back to that da database which was put together by people and then manipulating us is that part of this conversation or not Absolutely. I mean, there are there are a lot of things that AI can do that should worry us, and, and maybe we should talk about them. But that, but it's not the intelligence. It's not the you know robots are going to um, take over the world and turn us into pets, and that we don't have to worry about. But there are issues, big issues: discrimination, privacy, safety, military uses. Um, uh, all of, all of those are things we should worry about. But if we got a minute, can we just come back to a minute to, to the, the idea of having a conversation with a computer? Because a lot of people are going to listen to this conversation we've just had and say, well, if Steve's saying you can't ever have a conversation with a computer, I talk to Siri every day. What about that? Right. What about that? If you look at, um, and, and again, it's a, it's it's amazing technology, uh, but there's no intelligence there. The way all of those programs are written is somebody sits down, and in the case of Alexa, there are over a hundred thousand companies or, or people that have developed these these little uh, uh, chat abilities. So there's a, a lot of people working on it, and what they do is they make a list of all the things. They want you to be able to say. And for each thing they want you to be able to say, they program the computer how to respond, either by saying something or by 
running a program. And then they detail every possible way they can think of that you could say each one of those things. Right. But and that's how they work. Uh, yeah, but uh, and again, I, I'm going to interrupt a lot because that's my nature, and I'm yeah. sorry about that. But uh, isn't that the way our brains work too? Is it, or don't are our brains essentially a database of uh, responses and and and, and conditioned, um, you know, words that we can reply to a certain words that are fed to us? No, that isn't what our intelligent brains are uh, do as well. Well, uh, a lot of what a lot of what you see in um, a lot, when you understand something, you understand a lot about what's not said. You don't just understand the words that are said. Right. Um, you you make you make inferences about uh, what what hasn't been said. Um, if I tell you, I like apples. Well, you know I'm talking about eating. Well, I never said anything about eating. Right. Uh, Alexa has no idea that that you eat apples. <laughs> gotcha. I I get it. So, but again, I, I keep thinking, you know, not in the next twenty years or forty years, perhaps. But can you see it in in the next? Hundred years, let's say that we will make that advance. Uh, somebody will create a think because they created a a, a machine that can uh, beat geniuses at chess or Jeopardy and uh, win in Jeopardy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, is, is that intelligence in your view or not? You know, what started me thinking about writing this book, uh, you know, it started with the uh, IBM Watson computer that beat the two Jeopardy champions. You know, I mean, I watched that. I admit I was rooting for the computer. I was thrilled when it won. And, <laughs> you know, it, it could answer all these complex questions. It was amazing. But I knew that under the hood, there was no intelligence there. That what was really happening was, you know, probably this is what I was guessing, that, you know, the, the, the computers matching the words in the question to the words in a massive database of articles that are pulled from the in internet and Wikipedia. And in fact, IBM published a, a, a 12 series, an article of a series of 12 technical articles where they explained exactly how, how it worked. And I read them. And I said, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I figured. It, that's exactly how it worked. Amazing that they could do it, but no intelligence. Um, and then IBM started marketing Watson started branding themselves as Watson. Watson can think and reason just like a person. Um, man, that started that, that I didn't like, you know, that that's to me, that was, that was, I didn't, I didn't like that. And, and, and then Microsoft came along and said, Was it false advertising? Is that what that was? Or was it, uh, is that the reason that you, you, you were against it? Well, false advertising is um, false facts. So IBM made the claims in a way that the um, the facts were correct, but they but they still misrepresented the truth. Okay, that's part of why I used truth in my in the book title. You know, and then Microsoft did the same thing. We've created a a computer program that can read as well as people, that can read better than people. 
Nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact, yes, on they, they were able to create a program that matched words to words, and on one specific type of test, they got human-level results. But the computer didn't understand any of what it, what it was reading. It was just matching words to answers. Um, uh, I... I and I, I, I apologize. I forgot where I was going with that. Well, uh, it's all right. Well, the question here again: you 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 point out this computer that was it mocks intelligence by by having such a strong database for this one particular task. But what is uh, stopping people from creating a machine that combines that those really super powerful database-driven tastings? And taking every possible, or well, not every possible, but many, many, many human-like tasks into one machine with all those lots and lots of databases now for each independent task. Is that intelligence or is, or is this still a, that part of reasoning uh, missing? So, so I'm going to give you two answers to that. First of all, People do a lot more tasks than you really think about. I, I detailed in my book how just making breakfast might be like a thousand different tasks. Um, but suppose you did do that. Suppose you know you identified a billion different tasks that a person can do, and you built an AI system for each one of those tasks. Now your question is, would you have an intelligent machine? Right. Well, how is the machine going to know which task to apply to which situation? Right. You that need intelligence. Re reason. You, know, right? you, need, you need intelligence. You really haven't started yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that will. So is reason beyond the capability of machines? Uh, can can machines ever um, have that? What we what we call intelligence from the human brain? Um, can they apply reasoning to things? So I think it's, a, again, I think it's about as likely as time travel. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've been trying to do that. Um, we thought we were going to be able to program computers to reason in the 50s, then again in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, we actually skipped the 90s because we That's why I want – I wanted to add because you said the winter of AI in the, in the 90s yeah. is, is I grabbed that from your website. Um, what does that mean? We stopped doing any research into AI in the 90s? Yeah. So it, so what happened was, you know, in, in the 1980s, AI was really hot. It was on the cover of every magazine, Time and Business Week. And, you know, and uh, AI was just over the horizon. And um, uh, by the end of the 1980s, it had never materialized. You know, we didn't, it, it hadn't built, you know, usable systems like facial recognition and machine translation. Nothing had happened. And um, people gave up on it. And in fact, researchers like, like me, we, you know, realized it was way, way, way harder than anybody thought and, you know, kind of kind of gave up in a lot of respects. There was a, um, a professor at Berkeley who taught AI. In 1985, he says he had... 500 people in his intro to AI class in 1990, 25. Wow. And that became known as the second AI winter. And a similar thing had actually happened towards the end, end of the 60s, early 70s. Um, 
So there have been two-way eye winters, and you know, people ask if there'll be a third. And, and the answer, of course, is no, because AI is is making such an impact on on everybody's lives. Um, it, it it strikes me as maybe. Uh, I, obviously, you being in the field, you would know better than me. But it, it strikes me that maybe the attention was just diverted away because in the 1990s, it was all about Windows 95 and AOL and people getting online for the first time. So a lot of the um, attention, a lot of the money was being driven that way. So it might not be that people were necessarily giving up on AI. It's just there was a more lucrative and more pressing attention-grabbing phenomena that needed the attention of the tech uh, sector of the world. It, it, does that have any validity, that, that argument? It, it's, it's certainly possible. It's certainly yeah. possible. But, um, but it was also true that, you know, AI hadn't gotten anywhere and nobody knew how to, how to make it get anywhere. Right. Well, we are past the half hour mark, which is where I usually like to uh, do a little plug for the book. The website is airperspectives.aiperspectives.com. Uh, it's all one word, and the link will be in the description. I want to show the book cover quickly if we can. Uh, that's the book cover right there. It's The Evil Robots, Killer Computers, or, and Other Myths, The Truths About AI and the Future of Humanity. So we, we talk about the fears of um of ai what are the uh from your uh perspective what are the uh positive things that we're looking at right now i mean obviously manufacturing and in medicine there's some use for it uh what where it where is the biggest plus to humanity as we're seeing it right now with with, with where ai is headed you know, it's it's affecting our, li our, our lives in so many ways. You know, the biggest impact might yet be in the medical area. Um, there are over 100 AI programs in different areas of medicine that are helping doctors with diagnoses. And um, uh, it, it's you're seeing AI being used for weather prediction. And, um, uh, you know, I have a I have a, a word document where I keep track of different applications. It's almost every area that you can think of, manufacturing and um, sports and uh, predictions, and um, it's, it's being used everywhere. So, but the premise of your book is, and I don't want to, uh, because I have not read the book yet, uh, but uh, it's really that we shouldn't be as afraid as we are, but should we be worried at all? Or is it, it's not that we shouldn't be worried at all, is it? No. There are some very the, the the premise of my book is there are some really big things that we should be worried about, and the biggest of which is self driving cars. Um, but self driving cars, discrimination, privacy, military use are all issues we should be worried about, and we can't focus on those things if we keep worrying about Westworld androids and uh, the Terminator, which will exterminate us all. I uh, I guess I'm really lucky, or uh, maybe I'm really smart, but I think probably more lucky, uh, that I, I stopped watching television. I took television out of my house 13 years ago and haven't watched it. I've never seen Westworld. I, huh? When I hear people talking about Westworld, I think of the movie that uh, Yul Brenner was in in the late 70s. Same, uh, same, by the same, time. <laughs> same idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same idea, yeah. Um, but uh, I, 
I haven't had any of that uh, influence of pop culture. Now, Lori said, I love data on Star Trek Generation. I'm assuming data is a robot. I don't, I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Data is a, an intelligent android like the Westworld right. androids. Yeah. Super so, intelligent android. So from your perspective, is AI a misnomer? Because it sounds like you're saying it's really not intelligent. So it, artificial or not, it's not intelligent at all. It's just advanced database, data-driven um, responses from promatic data-driven responses, right? So it's not really intelligence at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's the terminology um, – leads to a lot of the fear, you know, calling it artificial intelligence when it, right. there's no real intelligence there. Um, and a lot of the terminology that's that's used in intelligence, you know, AI systems um, uh, have imaginations. They can reason. I mean, not really. Right. So <laughs> as a scientist, um, and do you give any, any credence? Because scientists are the ones who came up with this idea now i i'm going to lead you into a place you probably thought this would never go and i'm going back to my sunday night program here is that um for years and years science was very atheistic and um the, there's no god there, and went out of their way to to push science and religion further and further apart now all of a sudden scientists have found that not only is there a God, but he's a teenage kid in his mother's basement with a laptop, uh, <laughs> uh, basically creating a matrix where we're all simulated. Uh, uh, do you give any credence to that at all? You know, how would we know? I don't know. I can't get a, a, one of the guys who authored the books to ever come on and talk to me about it. I am really curious about it. That's what I want to ask specifically. Uh, Nick Bostrom, I've, uh, he's, he, said he might be interested when the time clears up or when he has time to do it but i haven't been able to talk to one of these experts on it so i can't give you an answer on that but i know they're really adamant that that this is the case that god is some computer programmer out there which to me is mind-blowing because i can't imagine that the thoughts we have are all part of some because we all have individual thoughts and my experience of reality is different than yours as a human being so i can't imagine how that would work but i again i have a very i'm not i'm not the sharpest yeah. tool in the, in the shed to begin well, with <laughs> nick bostrom believes that we're going to build these intelligent robots and and that's all we should and that's what we should really be worried about right yeah, but he also um, he also believes that you know we are a part of a simulation, and he's written a couple of books on that, and that so that's where this is leading to. If if he's right in the fact that this is a simulation, then it indeed is It is very possible that we will see our, our robots with that kind of intelligence um, flipping the the. Uh, seen as it was and making us the machines or the slaves uh to the machines which is the big fear right well if, if we're already in a simulation we're already slaves to the machines well, we're not going to become slaves to the machines we already are and I, I get that and that's where the, the the theologian i had on who was talking about it said in some respect we already are uh we of course like he brought up you know we we 
we create these machines to do complex tasks, but when they break down, we find we're working for them. It's almost like uh, the, the story of if an alien came down and saw how human beings react now uh, with f- um, humans following around their dog, picking up the poop and putting it in the bag, you'd be confused at the, who's actually the master and who's the slave there, right? right? <laughs> it's that yeah, it's exactly. it's a little bit of that um, exactly yeah you know my my original book title had a little bit of a uh, maybe not theological but philosophical bent to it my the, my original title for the book was there's no ghost in the machine oh and you know that and- was a take that was a takeoff on a very well known uh, book by a philosopher named Arthur Kessler back in the 1960s who wrote a book called the ghost in the machine discussing uh, not so much with computers, but is there a, a mind separate from the body in people? Right. And that's a longstanding philosophical argument. Well, and that's where this, uh, on Monday, or was Tuesday, I don't know, I do so many shows. This, earlier this week, uh, when I had Pastor on, uh, he was talking about uh, m- machines can't have souls. So they, they, you know, or spirits as we, as we kind of think. Uh, but at some point, cause he definitely is a believer that AI, uh, will, will become more advanced and want to be take over society. He said at, at some point, uh, we need to grant personhood. He was like making a political argument that we need to grant personhood to machines because uh so that we treat them as people even though they don't have souls can can i get your reaction to that uh and it may is it the first time you heard that argument? no no absolutely not you know i, I mean it, there are people pushing for those kinds of those kinds of laws and you know that would make sense if uh computers and robots are someday going to be intelligent because if they're really going to be intelligent they're probably going to gain consciousness, and maybe we should treat them more like people and 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 worry about their rights. Um, uh, you know, but I make the analogy to my golf clubs. If I hit a bad shot and I decide to wrap that golf club around the tree, you know, nobody feels bad for the golf club. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you've got a a robot that has no intelligence whatsoever, can't feel anything, can't think, can't reason, can't do any of that. Why would you need laws to protect that robot? Right. I get it. Uh, no, I, I, I totally understand. So in your um, vision of the future, that's not going to happen, so we won't need personhood. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, um you know, he's a lot younger than you and a lot younger than me. So he hasn't had the experience in stuff, but he has studied, um, he has to dedicated his life since a teenager to studying AI and this kind of stuff, even though he's a theologian. Uh, and he, he, you know, what he, what we call computer, uh, artificial intelligence is something that he's, um, really studied a lot and, and got his, uh, PhD as well. Um, but he believes that at some point, there will be the kind of things that we see in Lost in Space or, or in, in television and movies where humanoid robots. That And I guess when we start to see things like on the Internet where advertisements for the the uh, robot that Japan has come up with, the uh, household butler type thing that interacts with you, gets to know, it has, like I, it was basically what I, I described earlier. A lot of those 
complex data data driven uh, tasks into one thing that looks like sort of humanoid and, and yeah. so that feeds into our uh fear of where this might go but that's the wrong place to be afraid i think you pointed out self-driving cars self-driving self-flying airplanes uh should scare the hell out of us more than than a robot like that right oh absolutely i mean self-driving cars everybody assumes that you know self-driving cars computers can process much faster than people they don't get drunk. They don't get tired. <laughs> so why wouldn't a self-driving car be a better drive, be a safer driver than a human? And in fact, you know, what I find scary about that is that the National Highway and Transportation Safety Authority has essentially taken that position. You know, they require for everything else in a car, you have to prove that the brakes are going to work. Show me the safety data, you know. But for the self-driving capabilities, you know, they're going to be safer than people. So let's get them out there. And we don't know how to test them. So let's not even bother to try to test them. Let's just put them out there. And the problem is that that car, there's no self-driving car that's ever going to be able to think or reason. And a lot of human driving is thinking and reasoning. You know, we see a ball bounce across the street, we look for the child running after it. You know, we see somebody weaving in their lane and we say, oh, I wonder if they're drunk. How am I going to make sure I don't get an, into, a, into an accident with them? Right. Um, and, you know, there are, if you think about driving, everybody's got a story about driving that's, that's different. You know, if there are, there are 1.4 billion drivers in the world, if there are 1.4 billion different situations that people had to think and reason their way out of how are we ever going to build a car that can do that right yeah and i think um i i bring this up a lot it's almost like a lot of scientists just ignore the lessons from horror movies and sci-fi horror and stuff like that uh across the board in, in experimentation and stuff but with re respect to driving uh you're right a, a, a human and, and this is might be an abstract, but a human can decide if there are two objects in front of you that you might hit. One is a dog, and one is a human. Uh, uh, most human drivers, anyway, would would opt to hit the dog rather than than the human. You know, make an yeah. adjustment to hit one or the other. A computer is not going to do that, right? It's just going to say there's an obstacle in front of me. Um, uh, I'm going to try to avoid both, or but it's not going to be able to choose which is the moral. Uh, right thing to do in that moment. Yeah, right? although you know, you know, you can program uh, for every type of object that you can recognize. Yeah, yeah. You can you can give it a list that says most important: don't hit babies. Right. <laughs> Next, don't hit adults. You know. Next, don't hit dogs. You know. So you can you can program that one example, but even more importantly. Have you ever been faced with that dilemma of what to kill in a in a car? Um, Most people haven't. I, I actually have, but it wasn't a human. It was it was two different animals. Two <laughs> different animals yeah. Not which one I killed, which one I was going to hit. And I, I hit uh, the deer, and the 
steer didn't even because of the way cars are built these days. Uh, my car is kind of like uh, it's not even aluminum. It's it's like this really soft plastic. The dealer kind of looked at me like that's all you got. Yeah. <laughs> it's good there, and it wasn't even hurt at all. So, but uh, I've had to make that decision. But even more important than that decision at all, I have turned on my computer that worked fine yesterday, and or the next day did nothing to on my own and found big problems with the way it was functioning and working. And so that point, you know, if we're going to have self-driving cars, they should be uh, checked out by a computer programmer every single day because you can turn it off and turn it on tomorrow and things will be go wrong for no reason sometimes. Even worse, you know, I, I have a Tesla and I actually love the Tesla, even though it's so far from real self-driving, but you know, about every two weeks or maybe every month, I get an over-the-year update, which changes the way something works. Right. And and when we've had updates, even on your phone, you can see that sometimes software developers uh, put out updates before they've been thoroughly vetted and tested, and they end up with bugs, which is why we have so many uh, update, right. frequent updates. So that's something that needs to be taken into account with self-driving anything and drones and all that stuff too as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and – um you know, Tesla claims it, it tests much better than the, your typical software, but you never know. I mean, I had, and most of the updates, I have to admit, most of the, every update except one has been something that I actually like in the car. You know, it's better visual, better, the screen shows, um, you know, maybe the, the, the cones on the side of the road. And I mean, it's little stuff that I like, but, but a couple of months ago, I turned on the car and all of a sudden I was no longer able to use um, my voice to say, you know, call Matt. Wow. The the microphone was gone. Absolutely wow. gone. It's, it's still gone. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did, was that intent? Was that an intentional upgrade or uh, a, a mistake in the programming? I assumed it was a mistake and that it would come back. You know, in a but there have been you know three or four updates since then and it hasn't come back. So so um. The long and short of it, uh, really, for people is not to be alarmed or overreacting to the Hollywood uh, um, exaggerated versions of humanoid robots, but to be paying attention to more things of that are much more mundane, uh, like drones or uh, automatic. Uh, big machines that can can cause harm that are being driven by computers not necessarily with intelligence but with uh strong by databases of course but that's where the the concern should be rather than this idea that how how it's going to lock us out of the spaceship (laughs) do i do i sum it up correctly absolutely and it's you know in addition to that um you know last year uh a guy named uh, Robert Williams, who lived in the Detroit suburb, um, had a knock on his door, and the police came and locked him up and kept him in jail overnight. Why? A facial recognition program had matched his face to a bank robber's face, even though it was a grainy photo of the bank robber. Um, uh, and Facial recognition is is notorious for being discriminatory. Um, it's much more likely to make 
a mistake with a minority, and Robert Williams was Afri is African American, um, than it is um, with a white male, and and that's scary. And it's not because the programmers are discriminatory. It's because, again, you start with a data a database, and that right. database has images of people, millions of images of people. Well, all the early facial recognition systems use databases that are mostly pictures of white males. Right. So it doesn't work as well for minorities. So they're right. more likely to get, you know, collared for a, uh, a, a crime they didn't commit. So now companies are pulling back all their facial recognition programs and rebuilding them with databases that aren't discriminatory. Hmm. Uh, well, what has been the response to your book from the academics and people in the field? Uh, most people agree with you uh, and think that this book is uh, needs to be uh, read by uh, lawmakers and, and and people like that, or do or the majority of people are are on the side of uh, AI and what we think of our imaginary uh, AI future is more likely to happen. Where are people lying in response to your book? You know, I've gotten all five-star reviews on Amazon, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that everybody agrees with me. Right. Maybe um, it's I've, a well-written book. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and I've gotten good reviews. on. I've gotten, you know, good stories on Forbes and, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of review sites. Um I, I don't know that academics uh, actually disagree with me, although they may think that uh, they may figure it out faster than I think they're going to figure it out. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something that's difficult for academics to talk about because, I mean, let's face it, you know, you, you've got uh, AI people who are making million-dollar-plus salaries in a lot of a lot of companies right um there's an incentive on uh, part of academics and scientists to want to uh push this forward um so they, they're not going to necessarily be unbiased is basically <laughs> the point there right right and and i'm not the first i'm not the first one to um you know make an argument like this um why why do you think is it just because of pop culture that that this uh because i i'm still on the the with all all the things in, in taken into account i i think probably a hundred years from now there will be something um with real intelligence but i don't know i'm again i'm not the sharpest and i haven't studied this stuff my whole life but i see I'm carrying around a television studio now, which was just like science fantasy when I was a kid. Uh, I'm ca not just a television studio; it's everything I ever ever need to do is here. Uh, so, to me, that that suggests that technology is moving at such a uh, rapid pace. In my lifetime, I never thought I would see that. And I, that's ten years, twelve years old yeah, now. Yeah, no, I feel the same. I feel the same way. Yeah, but you know, but there's some things that are just much, much harder problems than than everything else. I mean, just, you know, a lot of people think that in order to get to really intelligent computers, you have to understand how the brain works. Right. And, you know, some researchers will tell you that we've made a lot of progress in the last um, uh, 10, 20 years um, understanding how the brain works. 
But, you know, we, we really still have very little idea of how the brain works. So I'll tell you a story. In, in 1980, I was part of an academic debate um, uh, about how uh, visual images are represented in the brain. You know, so if I ask you the question, what shape were German Shepherd's ears? Give me the answer and tell me how you how you how you got that answer. What shape is a German Shepherd? Yeah, it's German Shepherd's ears. Um, I don't know what what shape it is. Uh, I don't know. Well, so most most people would most people would say, okay, they're pointy, and I figured that out by I visualized a German Shepherd and kind of traced up the body to the head right. and then to the ears and. I kind of saw in my mind's eye that they're pointed. Okay. So, you know, that set off, you know, uh, a big academic debate, um, which, you know, dozens and dozens of academics participated in, you know, over, over many years. Um, half said, yeah, in the brain, you know, there's something analog like a picture that has, you know, that has dimensionality. And other people said, no, 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 it's just a list of facts. And we fool ourselves into thinking that there's a picture there. And, you know, you know, and, you know, I look back at the debate now, and it seems like arguing about how many angels on the head of a pin. Right. But, but some, of the, some of the best minds were part of that debate. You know, Steven Pinker, who's written some of the you know, best books on, uh, on the psychology of mind, and Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered the father of modern AI and um, – and a bunch of others. And my point is, with all those great minds, we still don't know the answer. Right. Well, you used a couple of different words there, and I think it's important to, to point out, and what I think it, it illustrates the point you're making, is that you use the word mind, but you also use the word brain. I think we know how the brain works, which is basically a database. Mind consciousness and the ability to have feeling empathy and all those things are part of mind, not necessarily. I mean, of course, it's all controlled by the brain, but all those things are not necessarily brain function. They're mind function, and their mind is not necessarily brain. They're two different things. Well, that's yeah. That goes back to that whole old philosophical argument: Is there anything that's mind that's not brain? Right. We don't know the answer to that one either, even though it's been debated for three hundred years. Right, and that that was my argument with earlier this week in, about uh, we can teach uh, machines and program machines to do lots of things but feeling and and reasoning and uh, mindfulness is something that's uniquely part of the human brain I think and I don't I don't see that ever happening but again you're right you can never say never but I just I just can't imagine it. that's not even in my imagination I can't imagine a, a machine feeling something, having emotion, empathy, all those kinds of things that we associate with mindfulness rather right. than brain function. So, right. I mean, I, I can't either, but I can't imagine machines really understanding language either. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't, oh yeah, I guess they do in some way. Uh, but again, it's all database driven, which is a part of, I think my big takeaway from this is a lot of the fear is because of the unknown, um, people who don't really look under the hood of computers or machines ever. Uh, so we just, all we know is the depiction that pop culture gives us of this humanoid uh, thing that 
that becomes like a human, even though it's made out of uh, machine, metal, whatever it, we created out of. So that's where the fear comes from, right? Exactly. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. And, and, you know, if you're still worried about it, you know, re- read my book, and hopefully I'll convince you that you don't need to worry about it. Uh, I, well, I'm convinced that I don't need to worry about it. But again, I, I'll, I'm sure I'll be long gone. It, long, <laughs> we'll all be long gone before it ever happens. But if yeah. you have kids, grandkids, um, maybe you should be concerned about some aspects of where we're going with with technology in the future, Not, but not necessarily the ones that we uh, conjure up in our minds. And this is this has always been the case with humanity. The future uh, that we fear is not necessarily the future we should fear. The things that, that end up being the real problems for us are things we never thought about, never considered uh, in, in, in our inv- advancement in technology and all that stuff, not the things that we imagine uh, and put into movies and, and books and stuff for, for dramatic effect, right? Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Great, great stuff, uh, and I appreciate you coming by and uh, and sharing your insight with us. Again, the the book is called "Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths: The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity." It's available at AIPerspectives.com. My guest today has been uh, Stephen Schwartz. Uh, thank you so much for uh, this uh, information. I just have one more question: Are you optimistic that your uh, insights are going and and the information you lay out in the book uh, and your perspective on it are going to make a difference uh, among the people who need to need to hear it. Um, I'm hopeful it'll make a difference with some people. Whether it'll be widespread, not so optimistic. Okay. Well, great. Thank you for for, uh, for coming by today. And uh, you, if you ever have anything more to say about this or any other subject, please come back and uh, share your information with us because this has been interesting and stimulating for me. I hope I learned something today. But thank you for coming. I wish you great success and bye for now. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it and thanks for having me. Bye. Stephen Schwartz, folks. Again, the book is Evil Robots Kill Computers and Other Myths. It's available at AIPerspectives.com. Hope you enjoyed this program. Hope you got something out of it. Hope you learned something today. Hope uh, if you were were worried about uh, the robot takeover of the planet, uh, your mind has put at ease a little bit. I think most people are still going to be nervous. I'm convinced that uh, by what he says about about where the, what real int- intelligence looks like and, and the difference between what we see in data-driven tasks and real intelligence. I'm convinced that that's a good argument for now. Uh, what the future holds, I'm still on the fence about that. But again, I don't think I'll be around for it. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. Uh, write to me at info at minddogtv.com and let me know what you thought about today's program. I hope you share it with other people. And tonight at 8 p.m., my friend Morgan Roberts will be uh, joining me for a just a casual conversation, catching up with a, an old friend. So, uh, But it will be an interesting program. I, I guarantee you that her dad, Jimmy Roberts, has been a frequent guest on the program, and he's the guy who informed us about the past and future of Mars exploration and all. And what it means to us. So, uh, and Morgan is a lovely, lovely young lady who kind of introduced me to her dad. It's a nice, nice way to end a week for me. I don't have any shows this weekend because of the outperforming of the band. So, until 8 p.m. tonight, I'm Matt Napple from Mind Dog TV Podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great night. Bye for now.
me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. 